Welcome to The Grizzly Beat, a podcast of Grizzly Times and Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientific experts, managers, Native Americans, writers, and others to share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience. This comes at a time of enormous interest in the grizzly bear's future as the government proposes to remove federal protections and citizens are asking important questions. We hope the information shared here will help listeners shape their own answers. Welcome to the Grizzly Beat. This is Louisa Wilcox, and I'm here with a dear friend, Charlie Russell. Charlie Russell is a grizzly bear expert. He's a filmmaker and author of numerous articles and books, including Grizzly Heart, Living Without Fear Among the Brown Bears of Kamchatka, and Spirit Bear, Encounters with the White Bear of the Western Rainforest. Charlie is the subject of an award-winning BBC film, The Bear Man of Kamchatka. And with his partner, Maureen Enns, Charlie filmed the documentary, Walking with Giants, the Grizzlies of Siberia. Charlie and Maureen are the only people known to have successfully raised 10 orphan grizzly bear cubs, this in Russia, and to have returned them to the wild. Charlie lives on his family's ranch near Waterton Park, Alberta. Charlie, you've had amazing intimate experiences with grizzly bears in Canada, Alaska, Russia, other places, and many refer to you as a bear whisperer. How and when did the whispering begin for you? I I live among grizzly bears on a a beautiful ranch that that I own now, but it was homesteaded by my grandfather 110 years ago. <clears throat> and it's on the edge of Waterton Lakes National Park. There, there are more grizzlies here now than there were back when I was a kid, but still uh, there were often bears around here. So I, uh, I just got... Mm, used to being around them and watching them and I I really enjoyed them as most people do when you get to watch these animals in a situation uh, where they're not afraid and and especially if you're not afraid then it's it's a beautiful experience and that started a long time ago with me but I don't like to call myself a bear whisperer I I don't like to call myself anything, actually, because when you when you form questions, you need to form questions around things. And if you identify yourself as something, then then you're asking, well, for instance, what does a bear whisperer do in this situation, or what have you, instead of really looking for answers. So, uh, no, I'm just a person, and... I like bears. I always have for a long time, and and that's uh, that's where where I got started. You managed your family's ranch near Waterton for 18 years or so, and you figured out how to make peace between cows and grizzly bears. How did you do that? Uh, well, again. It, it was uh, it was an idea because I liked grizzly bears. Uh, I, 
I, I saw that there was a lot of things that were said about them that weren't true in, in reference to people. Um, I also, when I was ranching, I thought that that might be also the case with bears and cows. So I, I decided to let let them feel welcome on my place to see what would what would happen. And I didn't believe that I would lose a lot of cows, so I wasn't being terribly stupid about it. But I just wanted to understand what uh, what would happen and. And I had opportunities to watch them with my cows too, and and it was quite remarkable what would what would happen. Bears. That is not to say that grizzlies do not kill cattle. They do, but it doesn't happen very often. And and, uh, and in those days, uh, there were a few expert wildlife people working for the government that could remove bears that did kill cattle, and they did it very skillfully. This isn't the case anymore. There's not very many skilled people working for fish and wildlife or whatever. And so uh, so if they get started killing, they... Uh, it, it can be a problem if, if uh, so. Anyway, it's a it's a bit of complicated situation. But I also decided that that uh, these animals could be uh, fed my dead stock. Uh, and you know, I wasn't the perfect rancher, so I had a few dead animals around, and I would put them up next to the Waterton National Park boundary, and so that the bears could find them when they came out of the den, and and have something to eat at a time when the, you know there wasn't a lot for them to eat, and I and I thought that it would be similar to. You know, to the times when bison were everywhere and winters were sometimes hard on bison, so grizzlies, when they came out of their den, would have lots of bison to eat, and so I didn't see anything different from that. It, it wasn't too popular an idea amongst my neighboring ranchers. They thought that I would tr teach the bears to eat cattle, and and kill live ones if they got a taste for dead ones. I didn't think that that was necessarily going to be true because uh, it, 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 there is a lot of grazing done during the summer up next to the mountains in grizzly habitat, and, and cows die, and nobody took those away from the bear, so there was no real effort to remove dead stock during the summer, so why worry about it, teaching them to eat live cows during the winter? So anyway, this went on for the whole time that I was ranching, which was 18 years here.
and and uh, it it seemed to work very well. Uh, other ranchers would give me their dead stock, would put up next to the park, and 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 because they realized that some that that there were there were less bears coming east into their calving yards and and uh, so they could see that it was helpful eventually they could see that it was helpful and then fish and wildlife started doing it with roadkill deer and elk and moose uh, later after I stopped and in the same area and it it's it worked quite well for it it isn't still working because uh, now there are more grizzlies and ranchers are worried that that part of the reason that there are more grizzlies on their places is that this dead stock thing is giving bears more to eat and therefore can raise more cubs and put more pressure on on them on those bears on their land which they're not used to now Mm-hmm. Charlie, in your in your book Grizzly Heart, you describe an interesting experience with a female grizzly bear that you called Mouse on the British Columbia coast that suggested to you the possibility of an even deeper connection with grizzly bears. And it seems to have set you off in a different direction and eventually to Russia. Maybe you could share what happened there and where that took you. Yeah, I, I, my interest in grizzly bears eventually took over my activities. I I quit ranching and I and I wanted to really understand this animal. I I there wasn't a lot of opportunities to to do this, but one was guiding bear viewing people that wanted to see grizzly bears rather than shooting them and and it was a business that was just getting going on the west coast of British Columbia it, it had been happening in Alaska for quite a long time and anyway uh, I was I got guiding bear viewers and it was in the first grizzly sanctuary in Canada is still the only grizzly sanctuary in Canada, north of Prince Rupert, in a beautiful inlet. And uh, authorities didn't really understand how to do this. Uh, they uh, they put the same people were in charge of the parks, uh, bear viewing, as were setting the hunting regulations and so it it didn't really connect with me how they wanted this done and I became a bit of a I don't know a problem to them I think because they they would set uh, rules like you can't let uh, a bear within more than uh, closer than 150 meters from um, a bear, so you you have to get your your clients out of there if this happens. And 
this I noticed was creating bears curious. They would, when they saw us moving away from them, they would want to to run towards us because they could see, oh, we're, I'm moving these people. And anyway, it 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 soon was obvious that you couldn't do that. And and so I would allow some bears. Well, the ones that really wanted to, and they were usually the ones that were, were young ones that were recently weaned, maybe, and they would see that they would get protection from bigger bears if they were close to humans. And I, I started allowing that to happen. And and there was one female that was particularly... Uh, uh, Curious and friendly, and and uh, she would come running if sometimes it was showing, and and it was beautiful. Uh, people people just loved this bear. She was uh, extremely friendly and entertaining because uh, she would. We were often in a Zodiac, and she would come up right close ashore uh, and find a waterlogged ro- log or a rock or something and start playing with it and splashing, <laughs> and often splashing the people right in the boat. She was that close. Oh. It was hugely entertaining, and Lovely. people loved it. And anyway, it's this bear... I only had one opportunity uh, to be really close myself. I was always with people, uh, and and one time there was a party that it didn't come, and so I had some spare time, and and I would wa- I wandered in the bush with her in the forest. It was a beautiful rainforest, and. And my idea was that I was going to see how close she would come to me if she, if I let her. And I, by now, really trusted this bear. She, I was sitting on a log when she came along and, and got on the other end of the log and walked toward, up the log towards me. And she came quite tentatively because she was a bit curious and not sure her own self but eventually she sat down right beside me on the log and and, uh, allowed me to uh, I reached up and I stroked the side of her nose (laughs) and and, uh, I then she kind of opened her mouth and let me touch her teeth and I thought that was amazing then she opened her mouth farther, and I was able to run my finger inside of her mouth and along her palate, which was, you know, quite ridged palate, and and uh, it was it was mind blowing of the trust that she had, and I guess that I had as well, and I that did change my life in a way. I just had to explore the limits of this trust and. And hmm. and why certain bears could be trusted and why other bears couldn't be trusted. What what was the whole dynamics between humans and bears? 
became a, an obsession with me. I, I know there's dangerous bears out there, but why are they dangerous? And and right. I set out to explore that as much as I could. So in 1996, you had the opportunity to go to Russia and the wilds of Kamchatka, and you and your partner, Maureen Enns, built a cabin, and you adopted three tiny orphan grizzly bear cubs, and you eventually released them into the wild. And no one had ever been known to do this before, and many thought it was crazy. And maybe you could share what that experience was like. Yeah, yeah, that was quite a long time ago, and I might remind you that that I remember in 1993, late 93, I phoned you up because I'd heard that you had been right. to Kamchatka. Right. <laughs> and I wanted to understand what Kamchatka was all about, and because I wanted to go myself, it had just been the Soviet Union had just fallen apart and and uh, and I had known about bears as you probably had for the bears of Kamchatka for a long time and uh, and I wanted to know more about it and, and I had the opportunity to explore the what was going on with the poaching with the new arrangement in Russia and and uh, you set me up with a guy by the name of Igor Rivenko, and this, exactly. this was <laughs> this was an amazing man, as you know, and and he uh, he really did look after us there, and you know took us around many to talk to many people and see many bears and. In the area that he was studying, bears at Kuril Lake down southern peninsula. Uh, we stayed there among all these bears for um, a, over a week, I think 10 days, and uh, living in his cabin with him. And uh, uh, one of the campfire discussions, I had told him about a study I wanted to do with by immersing myself in a in a a population of bears that were were not uh, interfered with by man because uh, I wanted to understand uh, what these animals how the, if it was possible to be to develop a trusting relationship with them and I didn't want other people interfering i didn't want them to be hunted one part of the year and 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 then exposed to my behavior another part i had tried to do this in north america but it it uh, it wasn't a popular idea because so much of our our management of bears is to keep them fearful of people and and people fearful of them. That's basically how we have decided in North America to keep bears and people apart. And I, of course, didn't want to do that. I wanted to see what would happen if, if we could be together, close and trusting of each other. 
and so nobody in North America would allow me to do that because they were spending lots of money to the other going the other direction. So, so when Igor heard about what I was trying to do, he said, "I know the the perfect place for you. It's south of here." And and and, he, and he, yeah, nobody goes there. It's kind of a tricky place. It's down near the Cape, and and the weather isn't all that great. So if you can survive the weather, it'd be great. He said, "Well." We were supposed to fly there, but the weather <laughs> wouldn't allow us <laughs> before we left that year. And and so, but I really trusted Igor, and when he said that, and he was open to it, and he said that he could help me arrange that with the authorities there, we ended up going. And the next, next no, two, it took two years to get organized to do this and find the money and everything. So, but the, it it wasn't initially perfect because the bears did have a memory. Uh, for for one thing, during Soviet times, they killed sixty bears in that. It was called the South Kamchatka sanctuary and they killed 60 bears every year just for food wow. uh, often and mm. and so bears bears had a memory of of being killed and and so uh, our, there were lots of bears at this Campbellney Lake area right only about 30 miles from the tip of the peninsula and and uh, but but they were quite fearful, and so I thought, oh, my gosh, uh, this isn't working. It was very hard to, to uh, under, you know, to get uh, bears to even stick around long enough to, <laughs> to have any kind of pleasant experience with them. And it, it, but uh, from Igor, I heard about... He had taken us to the zoo, and it was an an awful zoo. And the cubs were were only kept in the zoo for a short period of time until they could hurt a kid, because kids could reach right in the cage and feed them. And that's Mm. what they did. They were invited to feed them. And Mm. so... Uh, the bears were, the cubs were kept there while they were small, but then as soon as they were big enough to release or to hurt somebody, they were killed. Mm. I, I got thinking, gosh, if I could uh, take these cubs from the zoo and 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 uh, and release them, you know, have them live here with us. Uh, I it would be a pretty amazing way to uh, explore the idea about you know learn a lot about bears and anyway uh, it it was it, it the next year uh, I spent that fall arranging that and seeing if I could do it and and the next year we got three these three cubs that you mentioned and. And 
it was the beginning of an amazing time because, well, bears aren't what you think they are. As, mm-hmm. as they knew they weren't, and and these cubs were the greatest teachers. For instance, uh, I thought that I could be a hero and teach them what to eat, and uh, <laughs> and. And I knew I had to feed them. Uh, I knew that the the rule, you know, because of the idea in North America that that if a bear was ever fed, even though it was even a small cub, it would never forget that, and it would be a dangerous bear forever. Uh, and that's why in North America we had not allowed any rehabilitating of cubs, uh, orphaned cubs. And, and so there was that challenge of how to feed them and then wean them from being fed, uh, uh, not not to be dependent on feeding. Uh, mm-hmm. There was, uh, but anyway, the cubs would uh, we'd take them on walks every day and and keep them in a pen at night, electrified pen to, to keep protected from other bears because there was a lot there was about 400 bears there and well wow. and they they would uh, there were certain ones uh, males that were predators for cubs and mm-hmm. so we'd take them for walks and the cubs were extremely quick on learning how what to eat and what not they didn't wait around for me to tell them what to eat. <laughs> they, they they would uh, explore and i could i would watch them eat safe halibur which i know is not really eaten by bears and it's it is a poison with oxalic acid they would grab a mouthful, chomp on it, and spit it out, and then they right. wouldn't do it again. And mm-hmm. so they learned immediately. They knew what to eat and what not to. So the other thing was the joy that they always seemed to have. They were so much fun to be around, and the joy would just sort of seep into your own bones, and you couldn't help mm-hmm. but be happy being around these animals. And and anyway, so so because I was there for 10 years, uh, you can imagine the experiences that, mm. that, that I had with these animals and what they taught me. And they would go off and den, and then you'd come back the next summer, and they would pay you a visit and say hi. That's right. It, there was one thing that I understood that I couldn't do, and that was to be the pro, you know, that I couldn't. Den um, couldn't decide on their denning, and so they had to den themselves. They had to find their own den and den themselves the first year. So before they were a year old, they were going on their own to find a den, and I didn't help them. I knew I couldn't help them with that. They had to do it on their own. So this was. Uh, important part of this experiment of rehabilitating orphan cubs was oh, could they do that? And they they would. They would disappear in a wild storm 
sometime in November. They were fat. Uh, I saw to it that they were in good shape. And and the next spring, seven months later, I would come back, and there they were. So it was uh, another example of the resourcefulness of these incredible animals to be able to do that before they were even one year old. A worried parent, <laughs> but uh, yeah. but great students. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And it felt, to me, it was like going to a university, and they were my teachers. Uh, they were my professors. Uh, they they uh, taught me about what life was about in more than just about bears. Just They taught me a lot about what nature how how nature worked because I was I was living in an incredible life with these all these animals not just the cubs but there were hundreds of other bears around living immersed in this incredible example of nature and then to go back in the, after they denned up to raise money to, so I could be back the next year mm-hmm. uh, I I was immersed there into the into our world of finance and and this craziness that it felt like to me uh, this weird world that we lived in outside of nature because we seem to think that we can live despite nature and and so the juxtaposition of these going from one life with these incredible animals to this other life that we live here it was really a teacher as well this is louisa wilcox and the grizzly beat talking to grizzly bear expert author filmmaker charlie russell this is the first of two podcasts Listen next week as Charlie talks about the dangers of tracking poachers from an ultralight plane in Russia's far east, the tragic deaths of our mutual friend Timothy Treadwell, the threats to grizzly bears in Yellowstone and Alberta, and the possibility of a more intimate relationship with grizzly bears.